Hi there, welcome to or welcome back to the Shift Control Podcast. My name is um, Paul McAnallen. Thanks for joining me in the first episode of the new series of podcasts. Um, first guest, Damien Hughes, author of The Barcelona Way, Unlocking the DNA of a Winning Culture. Um, Damien has been on the podcast a couple of times before. He's a um, class act, he's really easy on the ear, brilliant way of communicating what can sometimes be a fairly complex subject matter. And um, I really hope you enjoy this. The feedback from the previous episodes have been very positive and um, the book is an amazing um, discovery of Barcelona and Pep Guardiola on one side that also takes you deep into what's required to create an authentic winning culture within your organisation and not just paying lip service but what steps need to be undertaken, what you need to, um, what you need to do, what your staff need to do and yeah it's just a, it's a really um, it's a really enjoyable read. I hope you enjoy the podcast, and I will talk to you again. Damien, listen, um, genuinely great to to have you back on the podcast again. Um, the, la- the last time we were speaking, I think you just finished writing the Barcelona Way. Yeah, well, first of all, Paul, thanks for coming. Uh, thanks for inviting me back uh, to come on the podcast. I've, I've really enjoyed the couple of times we've chatted, and then some of your listeners have been kind enough to get in touch and just bounce questions around as well. So it's a real privilege. So thanks for having me on. Good man. No, no, you're very welcome. You're really welcome. Um, you've been very busy this last, um, from your social media uh, activity, you've been very busy promoting the book. It's been going very well. Yeah, yeah. So there's, um, I'm in the States now. So I always think there's two stages, and I've only learned this by, by, uh, by experience, is that there's two stages of doing the book. The first bit is the actual writing and the hard yards of doing it, and then the second bit is about getting out there and trying to sell the book and just arouse people's interest. And the two very different skill sets. So I love doing the first bit in terms of the research and the writing. This bit about getting out there and promoting it is a little bit outside my comfort zone. So it takes a bit of learning to get to do it. But I genuinely love the topic and I love sort of interact with people that are interested in it so I've really enjoyed it I've done a couple of book, uh, of book events I did one in uh, Manchester last night and I'm in London uh, next month doing some stuff around it as well So um, the Barcelona way uh, before we were um, uh, lined up to do this I did a bit of research on Barcelona Okay, um, I've read one book before in the club which was by Jimmy Burns Oh yeah, classic book Yeah, Amazing book, you know he talks about um, the club in terms of its cultural, historical and social relevance and then yeah, um, yeah. doing a little bit of... I didn't realise that Barcelona were the, they're one of seven teams to have completed the domestic and European treble. Man That's United, right. Barca, uh, Bayern Munich, Ajax, Celtic did as well, but Barcelona are the only team to have done it twice. That's right, yeah, yeah. Um, all the players when they join the club, um, including those uh, the foreigners and the locals, have to learn Catalan. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's another thing because they see themselves as as a symbol of, of of the Catalan region. They're about representing Catalonia to the rest of the world. Yeah, um, and then in two thousand eight, two thousand nine, under Guardiola, they won six trophies in the one year, in the one season. That's right. Yeah, unprecedented. Never been done. Yeah. Okay. So, I, I was reading the book. I think it's brilliant. You've got your your style of writing and the way you weave these vignettes of theory and business and anecdotes are it's really superb but like the book is as much about the phenomenon of culture as it is about Barcelona yeah that, uh, well thank you first of all for the kind feedback Paul and I am grateful 
Um, in terms of what the book's about is, it's so it's not a football book. It's a book about culture and about how to create a high-performing culture. And then it tells the story of it for, about how Barcelona took the leading edge theories around culture and implemented it. Now, what's interesting um, around this and why and why uh, Barcelona are really illuminating is that the traditional life cycle of a football team is four years. Barcelona have sustained this success since they went down this cultural route of a 10-year span that's unprecedented in European football history. So out of the last 10 league titles, they've won eight of them. They've won three European Cups in that period, having only ever won two before this. They've become World Club champions three times in that same period. So what culture demonstrates is when it works, when people understand it rather than just talk about the abstract term of culture and when it's implemented well, results follow. And the book tries to break down what we call, rather than just it as culture, it's about a commitment culture. And when we can explain that and, and almost break down the elements of it, it hopefully allows a reader to understand how they can do it, whether it's in their own team, their own family, or their own wider organisation. It hopefully gives people some pointers on how they can do it. Okay, so the um, I would love to get uh, Doug straight into it because um, uh, I know we're, we're kind of we've got a little bit of time. The the yeah. acronym um, B A R C A is is B for big picture, A for arc change, R for repetition. C for um, cultural architects and A for authentic leadership. Um, That's right. Just d- dig into that. Give me some anecdotes and give me some examples of how Barcelona, even for, for the big picture. So the big picture is typically vision, right? Yeah, sure. So the big picture bit is around, it's effectively the why, the what and the how. So it answers that. And, and for a commitment culture to take hold, you need to be able to say, so why are we doing this? What do we stand for? Because that taps into the idea of that, that we all long to belong to something. Part of our psychological wiring is we all want to fit into something that's bigger than ourselves. One of our earliest lessons was we learned, don't go hunting alone because you'll get picked off. So we all want to belong to a tribe or a, something bigger than us. So you have, you have to be able to give people that sense of identity. So at Barcelona, it's about represent Catalonia to the rest of the world. We represent the very best of what Catalonia stands for, their culture, their history, their language, and all the all the great things about the region. The what bit is about, so what, so what is that going to look like? And a lot of people think this is about facts and figures or numbers and things like that. And what Barcelona articulate, and it was Cruyff, Johan Cruyff, the, uh, the Dutch legend that said it was, it's about playing really beautiful football and winning. So there's a famous quote from him that says, what's the point in playing boring, dull football, because if you don't win the league, he said, you've lost on both counts. Yeah. You've bored everybody for a season and you don't have any success to show for it anyway. So it's about playing beautiful football, but also winning as well. So it's not an either-or, it's a both-and. It's the how bit, though, that really intrigues me, and I think this is what most people understand. It's about how are we going to do this? And this is the bit where you get into this concept of trademark behaviours. Now, I'll make a really clear distinction for any of your listeners here. So there's a distinction between behaviours and values. A lot of people in organisations talk about what are our organisational values. Now, the reason I challenge this and make a distinction is your values are, um, are or your behaviours are your values in action. But the term values is abstract. 
And when people talk about values, it allows people to say, oh, I believe in those values, but they never actually have to prove it. So I can tell you that I believe in fairness for all, but I might be behaving in an, in an underhand way, but I can state adherence to a value without ever having to prove it. So what Barcelona and what commitment cultures demonstrate is they don't talk values, they talk behaviours. So at Barcelona, the three behaviours that they identified for their culture were humility first. They said, you know, by the time you reach our dressing room door, chances are you're going to be a multimillionaire, richly fated, highly decorated footballer. So if you come in start showing off those status symbols of wealth and success and privilege, that indicates that you lack humility. If you lack humility, you lack the ability to learn. If you lack the ability to learn, you lack the ability to improve. If you lack the ability to improve, you lack the ability to get better. So the idea is that humility is the first one. The second behaviour they have is hard work. They say, by the time you get to us, chances are you've worked incredibly hard to get there. This isn't the end, it's just the end of the beginning. You continue to invest in your talent. And then the third behaviour is you put the team above your own self-interest. So if there is ever a clash between what might be right for you and what might be right for the team, choose the team option. Put the team above your own self-interest. So that I start the book by telling a lovely story about um, one of the ways that they used to measure this was that they employed a guy called Manel SDR that used to watch uh, the bench during big games. And his task was to watch how players that hadn't been selected reacted to events on the field. So if a chance just went wide for Barcelona, they wanted to look at the players that sort of like jumped up in anticipation and then, you know, held their head in despair versus those players who just sat there with their arms folded. Because what they said is, it doesn't matter what you say to us, your behaviour indicates that you're sulking because you're not in the team, which indicates you're putting your own self-interest above the teams. And they would warn players of this, and then if they consistently transgressed the behavioural code, they, they implemented what they call the FIFO effect. And the yeah. FIFO effect says, fit in or fuck off. Yeah. But you don't get to pick and choose a culture. A commitment culture, by definition, says you have to commit to it. So you have to make a decision. So you don't go half in. You don't say, well, I like that part of the culture and not that bit, or I agree with that, uh, that behavioural code, but not that one. The point is you commit to all of it. And if you don't want to, they invite you to say, well, maybe you need to go somewhere else. Maybe you need to go to a different environment with different behaviours that suit you. So just on that, I, I want to talk about, um, I'm going to ask you to, to narrate that uh, Ibrahimovic story, um, which we've discussed sure. before. But as recently as Tuesday night, Liverpool played PSG. Yeah. And the final goal, Firmino, I think, scored the goal and the camera panned to Klopp celebrating. And at the same time, there was a picture of Mo Salah slamming a bottle down. And social media has gone kind of judge, jury and executioner on was he pissed off Firmino scored yeah. and he didn't get the spotlight or was he angry at his own performance? And um, it's funny how body language is really, really evident, but also very, uh, sometimes it can be as powerful when it's not so evident. Yeah, very much. Well, I mean, I haven't seen that particular incident, but what I would caution anyone to say is, it depends on what the behavioural code is. So we can look at it from outside and we can make a subjective view on it. And this is and this is the danger for a lot of cultures. If you don't articulate the behavioural rules of the game, you can't really take offence at what Mo Salah did because that's just your opinion. Whereas if you've agreed up front, listen, the team is first and whoever scores, we all celebrate and we're all in it together. Now you have the licence to go and have that conversation with Mo Salah that says... I don't like what you just did there. 
you were, you know, if, if it was about you were frustrated that it, the spotlight isn't on you, that would set the alarm bells ringing, but you can go and challenge it as long as you have the behavioural code. Yeah. So what you see with a lot of organisations on this poll is that you get people that, so they play at culture, they play at it, so it becomes almost like a gimmick. So they, in, so they'll have a gimmick that does something that they think represents what their culture is, and then most people see through a gimmick and it quickly gets dispensed with, or they do it they, they, like they'll have an annual conference where they'll talk about culture and then never mention it again. This is a, something that is a 24/7 operation, and the idea of a culture is it's about you you create an environment for people to flourish and perform at their best. And to do that, you need to have a really clear code of behaviours. And that's why the vision to start off with is really, or the, as you say, the big picture is really important. The what, why and how is really, really important. Zlatan didn't fit in for many of those reasons that you talked about. Well, he's a, almost a textbook example of, of, of how the code applies. So the story about him was, uh, so he's the record sign in Barcelona had ever paid. So at the time, they'd bought him for 70 million euros. So they brought him in and they told him really clearly, these are the rules of the game, these are the behaviours that you're expected to sign up to, and he agreed to it. Up front, he agreed. And then over the next 10 months, he kept transgressing those codes. So he tells the story, his first day at training, the, the, uh, the coach gave him the keys to a club Audi. And he said, I've already got a car. He said, I know. He said, but we don't drive. He said, I know you have it, uh, Ferraris and Porsches and Lamborghinis. He said, you don't bring them into training. When he asked why not, he said, because that's not what we do here. You're not coming in with status symbols of wealth. You come here to work. So it lacks humility if you're coming in to show off your wealth. So he agreed to that. And then as soon as he got dropped for the first time in his career, he talks about how he went, oh, I'm not bothered about that rule, and drove his Enzo Ferrari into training. So I did it deliberately because I wanted to make a point to them. So that immediately is somebody saying, I don't respect the behaviours. Then when they allowed him to go home during the Christmas break, they asked him to keep himself in good shape because they needed him to come back firing fit, ready for the games in January. And he deliberately just cho chose to overindulge himself uh, messing about on a snowmobile where he ended up uh, getting frostbite, he got he injured himself, which ruled him out. So that shows you that he wasn't prepared to invest in hard work away from uh, the environment. And then the third example was when they had an injury crisis, they asked him to play for the team in a slightly unusual position than what he was used to. And he went to the coach and told him that uh, he'd rather not be picked. Um, if, unless he could play in his preferred position. So again, it's another example of a guy putting his own self-interest above the team. So what they did was, that it's a textbook example of the FIFO effect. They got rid of him 10 months later. It took a huge financial loss on him, but when I interviewed the people behind the decision, their point was, if we're serious about a culture, you don't then start to flex it in response to somebody, however powerful or charismatic or talented they might be the culture is bigger than any one individual and you need to respect that so, and so for Barcelona it was humility uh, work hard and it's the team over everything yes yeah and that and, and, and that dictates um, all the, so if you can articulate those trademark behaviors in your own business that should then determine how you recruit people into the yeah. business how you reward them how you promote them, how you exit people. Everything should then come down to 
um, that, that criteria. So there's a lovely quote that the guy who was the director of football at Barcelona, a guy called Cheeky Bergerstein, gave me, where he, and I think it sums up culture beautifully. He says, your talent will get you as far as our dressing room door. So you've got to be a good player. But he said, how you behave decides if we'll keep you in that dressing room. So if you're running a business, part of your criteria is, can they do the job? Of course it is. Are they competent? Are they talented at it? But that's the first part of your criteria. The second part is, how will they behave when they come into my organisation? And too often we see in business where you have talented employees that might behave in a dysfunctional way that are allowed and indulged to do it because they bring in the numbers, you know, they bring in the sales, but culturally it's corrosive. It becomes really damaging and dysfunctional over a longer term basis. Yeah, I, I mean, mentioned before we went live that um, I'm working with a client who I spoke last week, as well as recently as this week, about some of the training work that I've been doing. And he was he was saying as much, you know, well, I've got the culture of things sorted and that's good. As if, it was a, as if it was a milestone instead of a continuum, as if it's not a journey, yeah. like it's an ongoing process, you know? Well, that taps into the second part of the acronym, Paul, the arc of change. So the arc of change says that, that it's not a one-off hit. All change fits into a pattern. We, um, and, and we know this except for when we're doing it. So the stat I like quoting to people is that in the UK, 91 98.1% uh, of people that go to diet clubs like Weight Watchers or Slimming World are the same weight or heavier 12 months after they join. So that's sort of like an incredible stat where you go, so why is that then? Most people are going for advice about losing weight but don't manage to do it. And the reason is because we fail to appreciate the pattern that change follows. So we go in with this idea that, oh yeah, you know, I'll discipline myself and it's a linear straight line process where most change fails in what we call the messy middle. There's a bit along the way where things get really tough. So the way that Barcelona did it was that they sat their players down and they used a roadmap. And the roadmap they used was the classic uh, Joseph Campbell work. So Joseph Campbell's um, a famous sociologist that studied all the world's cultures and he looks at how do we tell stories and pass information over. And he wrote a book called A Man With A Thousand Faces, but he talks about this classic idea of, of a monomyth. And a monomyth says that all cultures tell stories in five stages. And, and it's the five stages of change. So you start with the dream stage, which is where most people turn up and go, these are all the amazing things that I'm going to get out of making this change happen. This is what our culture is going to look like. That's the dream stage. The leap stage follows where you have to demonstrate some sign of commitment that you're going to take a step to make it happen. The third stage is the bit though that becomes really interesting. This is the fight stage or the messy middle. And this is where there's a concept in psychology called Cantor's Law that kicks in. Cantor's Law says, when you go into the middle of any change, it will always look like a failure because you get too far in to go back but not far enough to get to the end. And that's where most people go, oh, I can't do it and give up. But you need to persevere. And what the key bit that Barcelona did in this and that I'd encourage anyone listening in their businesses, they... Before they got into the messy middle, they sat down and tried to anticipate some of the problems they were going to face. And when they anticipated it, they said, right, so how do we get through those moments? Because once you can get through them, that's where you'll see signs of progress, the fourth stage. And then once you get progress, you then get to the arrival bit of then the change starts to become real. So it can never be a one-off hit. A one-off hit will only ever take you as far as the, uh, the dream stage of the change programme. 
it needs to be a constant uh, monitoring and checking where are we along along the arc of change. So um, I would have worked with a few other um, sort of change models, you know, um, in business and emotionally. You talk about like Kubler Ross is kind of like a, yeah. a, a, a similar kind of thing. Um, yeah. But when, in the book, you you look at it as if there's always this theme of the importance of communication, you know, and um, the, even with the big picture, you've got to be able to communicate what that is. And then in, yeah. the, the, uh, in this period or the phase of the arc of change, there has to be this continued, um, it's not a slavish approach, but an unwavering focus on the communication of it the whole way through. Um, now, I'm, not, I'm just yeah. going to be jumping about back and forward. You mentioned the last time we spoke um, about Guardiola taking seven hours for a 20-minute team talk. Yes, yeah. So, and, and I see this with some of the coaches I work with now that they that that they they don't just turn up and expect that their charisma will wing it, or that they've got some brilliant ideas that they can just communicate without putting any forethought into it. I've yet to meet an elite coach that, do, that like the ratio I've seen is that it's around seven hours for a twenty-minute impact. So they really think about how are they going to get the point across. They hone it. It's almost, it's almost about what they don't say as much as what they do. They don't just waffle. There's a clear intent to it. And they might do it through a speech. They might do it through telling a story. They might do it through a, through a, a ceremony or some kind of symbolism. But they invest a huge amount of time in doing that. Mm-hmm. So I, 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 like, I don't know if I told you the example time, but I'm working with the Scotland rugby coaches, and it was a brilliant example one of the coaches there did, um, where... He invested, I would estimate, about 20 hours into getting a message across to his co- uh, to the players about the importance of defending. And the way he did it was, he got the players to imagine that their house had been broken into. And that he said, you know, you're, uh, you're in bed, your partner's with you, you might have children in, the, in their bedrooms. And he got them to think about, what, what, so what are you going to do? How are you going to react when you know that somebody's downstairs in your house? And then beyond that, he then got them to think about once they've decided how they're going to react um, and, um, and they have to defend the property, he got them to identify what does that look like. And then from that, they identified it was about speed, surprise and total commitment, which is the themes that he wanted to get out for them to understand how that manifests itself on a rugby field. And he ended up with baseball bats and hammers and ratchet uh, claw hammers and things like that and screwdrivers. And he got them to imagine, if these are the only things you had at hand, how would you utilise them? And then beyond that, he got the players to talk about the different kinds of tackle technique and things like that. Now, I'm, I'm, so I've only given a snapshot, but the point I want to emphasise there was, he didn't just turn up and think that his charisma could wing that. There was a huge amount of thought and preparation went in to getting that message really clearly understood. And when you speak to the players afterwards, they still recount the power of that presentation maybe 12 months later. So for many leader listening, don't think that this is something that you can wing. This is, an, this is a continual investment of time and energy to do it. The research that I would say is that if you're prepared to do this uh, effort, though, the commitment cultures we're talking about, Paul, almost never fail. Compared to the other type of cultures, most people, they almost never fail. The research says you're about 22% more profitable than other organisations by investing in this approach. Investing is key too, and the, and the idea that if you're in a boardroom and you're talking about a cultural change for your business, you can't just have it as a 
uh, have the big conference, show the new logo, and then get on with it. You have to completely think of how you're going to have your a different uh, style of delivery of your sales message this Monday, next Monday, the Monday after. You know, the board 100%. meetings have to be, there has to be a continual energy put through the whole thing for it to be believable and to be bought into. Because ultimately the people... You know, like we talk about John Lewis or these other organizations where you're yeah. you're actually shareholders. The bottom line is uh, people in the boardroom have a different view of their position than the people who are working on the tills and the counters, but they all have to feel and behave in the same way. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I didn't go to anyone and say, if you don't want to invest the effort in doing it, don't do it. Because yeah. that's almost worse than, than doing it half-heartedly because next time or when the time is right to actually invest the, uh, the energy in it, if you've played at it before, you're going to come up against a veil of cynicism. There will be some people who have seen this before and will naturally be resistant to what you're going to do. So until you're prepared to say, this is a serious investment of time, don't do it and play at it. So there's a question I sometimes ask uh, athletes that I work with them where I'll say to them, if you think about your best, um, your best performance... Divide it up into hard skills versus soft skills. So what I mean by that is how much of it is down to strength, fitness, speed, and things that are easily measurable. And how much of it is down to the less measurable stuff like your confidence, your ability to communicate well, your, um, your cohesiveness, things like that. And I've yet to meet an elite team, whether it's in sport or business, that will tell you it's anything less than 30, 70 They'll say 30% of it is the talent, the hard things. 70% of it is the soft things. So the obvious next question is, where do you spend most of your time? So if you have a look at your weekly diary, where do you invest most of your time? And the irony is most people invest their time in the hard stuff. And you go, but the hard stuff will only get you 30% of your best performance. The soft stuff gets you 70% of it, and yet you don't put any energy or focus on it. How do you ever think you're going to get better? So I would encourage any business leaders to think about that and say, don't, if you recognize the power of culture, are you investing the requisite time and energy in that area? Or are you just talking about it, but then going back to your comfort zone of just doing the doing? Okay, um, no, fair point. Um, you'd mentioned that in the context of the, um, the rugby league team that you were working with, didn't you? Was that right? Yes, yeah, that's right. Yeah, so uh, that, that question I was asking uh, I did it last year with the, uh, with the England guys, the England rugby league guys, before they went out to the World Cup, and just got them to start thinking about how, when they were going to be away, so they were investing their energy, and, and get them to recognise the power of the social glue. So the idea of team meetings, not, so, I, and again, it was the alignment of, don't come into a meeting with your phones, because if, you, if you're distracted by your phone and you're sat opposite somebody, you're missing a really powerful opportunity just to establish and build some of that social glue that binds all cultures. So we were talking about it in that context yeah. more, uh, just to give some, uh, just to give some, some idea uh, around it. But that taps onto that important point that culture should be, there should be an alignment from top right the way down to the bottom around these behaviours. So there's a consistency. You mentioned or for repetition. Um, but presumably that's the right kind of repetition. It's like a deliberate repetition and purposeful. And also, you cite John Boyd's ODA loop. Yeah, so the repetition stuff, to me, is, is the bit that, that takes culture from being fluffy and soft to being hard-edged. Because the repetition is where you actually go and deliver what it is that you're there to do. 
Now, there's an old saying that Sir John Boyd is a, is a military fighter pilot, but all elite military organisations have a saying that's a variation of the idea that when you come under pressure, you don't rise to the, for, uh, to the performance, you descend to your level of training. So what, what Barcelona did was they identified the most important bits of their job on the field, and they identified what they call what they refer to as keystone habits. And a keystone habit says, if you get that right, chances are everything else will ripple from it. So, um, like in the military, like there was a there was a speech earlier this year about that guy that his whole thing was about make your bed, and the idea that if you make your bed, you start your day with a sense of order and 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 and, and structure that will then follow through your day. So the equivalent of that at Barcelona was they had two keystone habits. One of them was what they called the five-second rule. So if we lose the ball, the opposition are more vulnerable at any stage in that first five seconds after they win it off us. So what they did was they said, for that five seconds, we will make life intolerable and difficult for the opposition because that's our greatest chance of winning the ball back and capitalising on it. If we don't win in that first five seconds, we retreat. So they would practice high intensity. The second keystone habit they had was cherish the ball. Cherish, cherish, cherish possession. Because they said if they can retain possession between 65 and 70% of a game, they will win. I think the stats are something like 90% of games you, uh, you will win, whereas the most possession wins. So their whole, their whole training routine was around possession and getting players comfortable with passing a ball. And then they would measure this relentlessly. Training was focused on this area and it was measured relentlessly to make sure that when they came under pressure, those two things, high intensity and being able to be comfortable in possession, became became fundamental keystone habits for anybody that came into their system. So again, it might be, if anyone's listening to this and thinking about it in business, what are the most important aspects of your job? Because you can't get people to focus all the time but you want them to focus at the, all of the right times. So it might be, is it about your responsiveness to a customer call? It might be something about um, the way that you uh, pitch for a presentation. There will be certain keystone habits that you want to make sure everybody in your organisation is capable of demonstrating when they come under the most intense pressure. So that takes a bit of... Um a, you know, self-analysis or bringing people in to take a look at your existing processes so we can actually determine those, um, those keys. Yeah, to which is, which, you know, and I'm going to say it on your behalf, Paul, that's what you do so well, you know, in the business community there in Northern Ireland, that, that, that you come in and work with these organisations and bring that, that focus and that clarity about what are the most important processes that you're doing and making sure that people have the skills and, and the ability to, to nail those processes pretty much every time. Because, because this is what they're saying, it, like the sign of a great team, whether this is business or sport again is, your gap between your best day and your worst day is narrower than everyone else's. So when you're having a bad day, and everyone will, you know, like you can fix it and stop that spiral happening a lot quicker than anyone else. But if you don't, if you can't tell me what makes you a great team, how, like, how can you fix it when things are going wrong? And that's where I, like, I know uh, from, from and, and the testimonials that you get, that's where you really go in and add value. So there was one of the things that I, I'd wanted to say, just as you, as you mentioned that, and it's in, 
I'd always thought in the context of BARCA, and I'll come on to the cultural architects in a second, but time is always something, you know, Guardiola and football, you don't have a lot of time to get this right. You know, no. people, people can look back now and they can retrofit and they can say, yeah, but he had great players and he's a great manager. Like, he, he wasn't a great manager beforehand. He was with the Barcelona B team. He had no track record and brilliance at all. 37 years old. Yeah. So this this becomes a really interesting question about, so why did they even appoint him? Well, what they did was, I, I, I encourage people to think about, if you're going to recruit somebody to a business, Warren Buffett, so the, so the investor, advocates uh, three things that you should appoint anybody on in, the, in, in your organisation. The first thing he talks about is you, uh, they have to have energy. So they have to be energetic enough to see through what you're asking them to do. So you need to establish that. The second criteria is they have to be intelligent enough. So they have to be technically smart enough to know what you're asking them to do. Now, Buffett says if they've got energy and intelligence only, don't touch them. Do not have them. Because he says they might be dysfunctional, but they're smart enough and energetic enough to get away with it. It's the third criteria that he says you have to introduce. And the third criteria is integrity. They have to role model the behaviours of the culture that they're coming into. So... If you look at Guardiola, they had a five-man shortlist um, when they were looking for a leader for this. So if you view him through the intelligence and energy piece, he's the fifth most qualified. He's a 37-year-old former player with one year's coaching experience. When you throw the integrity piece in the mix, this guy becomes a standout candidate because he's somebody that had grown up in that culture and his whole career was spent role modeling the behaviors that, that the culture was going to be established on. So there's all kinds of stories that come out about him, but there's a story about when one of his goalkeepers, so when one of the coaches' father died very suddenly, Guardiola made the whole squad get on a plane and turn up at the funeral to pay tribute because it was about, you know, we put the team above our own self-interest. One of our members is suffering, so we're going to stand alongside him at his moment of grief. You know, this was a guy that took a contract working for a Catalan bank to go and do a series of leadership lectures and then took the money he got from it and distributed it to all his backroom staff without taking a penny for himself. This was a bloke that just role modelled what he was asking them to do, which was why it's not just... So Guardiola, I'll tell you, technically, he thinks that... So in his own words, he says that he felt being a football coach, 30% of it is being able to coach football. The rest of it is about focusing on the culture and the softer stuff. They're, they're his words, similar to what we were saying about earlier. So this was a guy that just role-modelled it. And again, that's a challenge for people to say. It's not just about how technically smart you are. It's about how you can demonstrate the behaviours consistently. Would you say he's the epitome of the, the C, which is for a cultural architect then? Do you think he's the best example there is? Um, I think he's the best example of the A bit, the authentic leadership bit. The cultural architect bit um, is, is, is the idea of, Clive Woodward used to make this uh, comment that he said, culture is what happens when you're not in the room. Mm. So when you're not there as a leader, it's how everyone's behaving when you're uh, in your absence. And I think the cultural architect piece is about where you get people that demonstrate and care for the culture and act through a sense of identity to the, uh, with the culture. And they will do that regardless of who's watching them. So that's more around, this is how your staff do. So. So, so within any group, there is always a hierarchy. There's always people that when they speak, everyone else listens. Now, these leaders might establish themselves because they're better at doing the job than anyone else, or it might be social leadership. People just want to follow them and warm to them and like them. 
The challenge in any culture is getting the right people to be the leaders. And what Barcelona did was, they so they got rid of, so the guys that had been leading the club during a relative demise, Ronaldinho and Deco and Eto, these guys were at war with each other and some of their behaviours were less professional than what you might hope uh, these guys would demonstrate. So, according to a lot of estimates, people say um, Ronaldinho retired from playing football after the 2006 World Cup. He just didn't tell anybody. Yeah. So, for two years, he pursued sort of like a partying lifestyle and football almost got in the way of what he was doing. Now, what's interesting is he was the best player. He was the cultural architect during that period. Now, culturally, what's interesting is during that two years that he was out partying, 10 of the 23-man players in the squad separated from their partners or wives because culturally, they're following his lead. They're engaging in practices that he's been allowed to get away with. So Guardiola's first act was to get rid of him and invest his time in the guys that identified with humility, hard work, and putting the team first. Like Puyol and... So, and, and... Like Puyol, Xavi, Iniesta, yeah. guys like that were given status and credibility within the group. Because his point was that... So when we make a decision, Paul, we make a decision based on two criteria. One criteria we make is cost versus benefit. We say, is this worth my time? Should I do it or not? Now, economists will tell you that's where we make most of our decisions. But some people make decisions based on identity. You say, who am I? What sort of person am I? And what's the situation? And is it something that I'm prepared to accept? And when you act from a sense of identity, you will challenge dysfunction. You will have a word with somebody that's not behaving in a way, regardless of whether they like you or not, but you do it because you go, this really matters to me, though. So one of the criteria that Guardiola appointed Pedro and Busquets was, was he said that they didn't have silly haircuts or wear earrings or have uh, tattoos. Now, the reason for that is not that he had an aversion to any of those things, but his point was, that told you something about the identity of those guys. They didn't want to stand out. They wanted to be part of a bigger thing. So they weren't egotists. These were guys that were looking to fit into the culture that they'd been invited into. So you start to recognise that it's not... It goes back to that quote that Pagir saying said, talent just gets you as far as the dressing room door. How you behave decides if you're going to stay within it, and that's really how powerful culture can be. There's one, there's one quote that you've that, that I've taken out of the, the the book, Damien, which is probably relevant to any any business that aspires to introduce a really authentic culture. Um, yeah. And the, the point of authentic culture leadership is not to do great things, but rather to create an environment where the whole group can do great things together. Brilliant. Yeah. Exactly. Which which is. That idea that, 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 so you look at what he's doing now at Manchester City. So one of the nice things that I see that he does is he, uh, so you'll notice this if you ever watch them play. One of their internal rules is whoever scores the goal, he's not allowed to run away and accept the acclaim themselves. One of the rules is you have to point to the guy that created the goal for you. So it's not about individuals because that's a, because that's what we call a star culture. Yeah. This is about being part of something that's bigger than you. That's, and that's just a, a simple but quite fundamental difference between a star culture and a commitment culture. Yeah, and you can look at, I suppose, the Galactico side of Real Madrid, the, the arch rival or the nemesis of Barcelona and what they were trying to achieve by buying in what were perceived as the very best players in their position in the world, regardless of yeah, whether exactly. they fit in or not. Yeah, and then, now, now that's a legitimate cultural model. 
But what all the research for that says is when it works, it's spectacular. Yeah. But there's also just as many examples where it goes wrong and the failure there is equally spectacular. So Real Madrid people at the minute go, oh, yeah, they've won three Champions Leagues and go, yeah, that's an example where it's spectacular. But also, they've only won one of the last ten league titles, which is probably the, one of the longest barren spells in the, in the club's history in that regard. So... So it can work on occasions, but it tends to be fitful or sporadic. Commitment cultures are the ones that keep... Like, they're harder to achieve. They're not as spectacular or sexy, but they almost give you a more of a guarantee of success. Would it be argue, argue, uh, Could you argue the point, rather, that um, if Guardiola does something like this in Manchester City, then it's a greater achievement than what he did in Barcelona? I, <laughs> no, I'd probably say not, and... Part of the reason for that is that I think what he did at Barcelona was so powerful because it's been sustained for 10 years. The life cycle of the team is customarily four years. Yeah. And what he did was he almost made himself redundant from the role and then four other guys have taken over and managed to sustain the success. So I think he did something uh, pretty unique in that environment because I think he was, because, you know, he's a Catalan himself, so I think he identified with it. Um, I think... Some of the stuff that you see at City, I think he's laying down the same blueprint that he did there. Um, so I think it, it's really interesting. But I think he also has a huge amount of money that gives him um, the ability to do that so they can make mistakes and correct it a lot quicker than what he could have done at Barcelona or somewhere else. Now, that's not to discount what he's doing. Yeah. But I think but part of the reason for attracting me to write the book about Barcelona was just... Um, how powerful it was, but how sustainable it's proven to be. Um, and, and we're, we're close on time here, Damien. There's one thing I wanted to say um, about the book. Um, you're, the amount of time and effort you must have put in because the resources and the accreditations and the people you've drawn from, Angela Duckworth and uh, you know Boyd, but uh, Carol Dweck and the, the people within Barcelona that you've spoken to, it must have taken you a long time um, to get to the point where it has been. It's, not, it's the number one bookseller right now, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So I'm really, uh, like... You're very modest there. Like, you should have said that at the start. <laughs> Imagine that, yeah, yeah. Do you not know? <laughs> no. Uh, no. Um, yeah, it, 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 I'm really proud of it. Um, I've, it. It's taken me about three years uh, to pull it together. So I am incredibly proud of it. Um in terms of the research and things like that. And and what I'm really proud of is that I'm, I'm just glad that it, it seems to be introducing a topic I'm passionate about into more of the mainstream. So so the fact that it's selling well and word of mouth seems to be quite powerful on this. And I've had a number of uh, quite notable people um, have, uh, that I know have read the book and I've had messages from them. So uh, I think I can get away with telling you that Somebody was at a dinner last week with Gareth Southgate, who uh, he said Southgate was talking about the book quite effusively. I've had somebody else that told them that Delia Smith, the cook, bought them the book for them. So I've heard from <laughs> like some really quite unusual sources of people that I wouldn't necessarily have expected to do it. And I don't say that to boast because that's not in my nature, but to, but and I am genuinely humbled by it. But part of the reason I am is because I just want people to be able to understand what culture means and how powerful it can be. Because I, because the idea is that if people are prepared to invest in this, the world, like a business becomes a nicer place. Yeah. People operate in a way that is 
is is is just kinder and more understanding and empathetic and 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 getting people to understand that what is frequently dismissed as soft stuff is actually the precursor to the hard delivery of facts. And I hope that people are reading it to recognise that soft doesn't mean soft. Soft actually means hard will follow. The hard results will follow. Oh, completely. And and uh, there's some of the, the psychology behind selling at the minute. They talk about um, the central and the peripheral um, route to influence and persuasion. And yeah. the, the central route is all fact-based. And that's all statistics, statistics, the yes and no, they can do and they won't do, features and benefits and everything else. And then on the peripheral route, it's all what they, they still call it the soft skills, you know. They still talk yeah, about yeah. it as if like they're really, really kind of redundant almost, but you can't live without them. You can't be successful without them. There was a, I think it was the week before England played in the World Cup, you were on Radio 5 and you were talking that's about, right, yeah, yeah you were, I heard you talking about Southgate and the culture that he has created. And um, I mean, he, he's probably a really good example of, He's well. The media might tell you that he was the least qualified person to lead the national team. Yeah, because he wasn't sexy. He wasn't. He's not the standout candidate. You know what I mean? But I actually think the point I was making was I think if you go down the authentic leadership route, Southgate is the brilliant embodiment of what this team is about. So as a bloke, you go. You know, was he the most talented? No. Did he invest in himself to get the very best out of him? Yeah. Is he a guy that's got a a certain amount of humility, yeah. You know, is he a guy that's looking to learn and get better? Yeah. Which is what the embodiment of that England football team was about, which is why I think we saw that alignment over the summer. They're not the best players, but they went close to demonstrating they were the best team. And there's a big difference with that. There's an example of just how powerful culture can be. Jimmy, thanks very much again. That's been like I think forty minutes, and you're past your your deadline. So I'm grateful for the time you've given up today for this. Oh, um, well, well, honestly, I mean, I've, you know, I've, I've I've loved sort of establishing um, a friendship with you, and I've loved the fact that you've invited me on and been so generous to uh, to invite me back. So, you know, uh, thank you, and thank you to the people that are good enough to to invest a bit of their own valuable time in listening to this. Uh, I hope they found it useful. I'm going to ask you one thing. If these people want to contact you directly, because some of them will want to talk to you directly, I've threatened to get you over here for a seminar. That threat hasn't gone away. I swear to God. I swear to God, we will watch the space. People have asked me offline about that or when I've said that. I'd love to, yeah. Yeah, I really would like to. But if they wanted to engage with you directly, what's your website and what's your Twitter handle and all that stuff? Yeah, so the website is liquidthinker.com um, and the Twitter handle's the same. It's liquidthinker.com. Um, people just Google Damien Hughes. Uh, I think it comes up. But, you know, if people do uh, have questions that it's not just about if they want to invite me over, if they've just got questions that they want to ask or stuff they want to run by me, you know, I am passionate about this. And if I can help anybody uh, to understand it better or understand how to implement it, you know, I'm more than happy to do it, Paul. No, I appreciate that. Your passion's one thing, but your ability to communicate some really, really difficult stuff and make it sound very, very easy and very simplistic is unrivaled. And um, Damien, thanks again, man. I really appreciate you coming on. So we'll get a chat again soon, hopefully. Look forward to it, Paul. Thanks for your time, mate. Cheers, man. 